All right. Back with Boltzmann Brain. Hello. Episode 9. Return of the Jedi. Yes. The the statistical mechanic Venice or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Attack of the statistical mechanic. Attack. <laughs> oh god. Uh, those movies. I was I was trashing people at work for I think liking the prequels. I was like or I can't I like prequel memes. I mean, I like the prequel memes, but like if you liked Star Wars prequels, I was like talking about creationists and people who like the Star Wars prequels. I was like they're in the same, <laughs> <laughs> they're in the same boat for me yeah. in terms of level of debate that I can have with them, <laughs> which is none. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Very random, but uh, the topic for this evening is statistical mechanics and some quanta and astronomy stuff. So the thing I wanted to talk about first, really, being is the name of the podcast because I think we've done a throwaway. Yeah. on what it's about, the Boltzmann brain or a Boltzmann brain, really what it means in the sense of like statistical mechanics is there's this guy, Ludwig Boltzmann, who is famous for this entropy equation. He has it written on his grade stones like S equals log, W, and then there's K, B out front, which is Boltzmann's constant. Boltzmann's constant yeah. So he has, yeah, a constant named after him too, not just a brain. So the, <laughs> so the brain we constant. qualify that with everybody. Yeah, exactly. If you got a constant named after He's you, you're He's got three platinum records and a brain. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's got a brain. So the the concept is that there's a bunch of pieces of statistical mechanics that kind of like straddle the world of the Newtonian mechanics where like everything's a bunch of clocks and planets spinning. And if I know where a particle is and I know how fast it's going and you tell, you know, ask me three years from now where it's going to be, I can tell you exactly. Versus in the quantum world where you have things that say like, if I know exactly where a particle is, then I have no idea how fast it's going. And if I know how fast a particle is going, I have no idea where it is. I just know it occupies some like yeah. sphere of possibility where it could be. So statistical mechanics is in the middle. And so why it's relevant for this Boltzmann brain concept is that Boltzmann thought that human brains or a brain in general could, statistically speaking, just exist from the thermo equilibrium vibrations of the universe that basically you have a state that's going towards higher and higher entropy but at certain points you can have very low entropy spikes where order appears out of nothing and so the concept was just that a brain could appear fully formed fully functional be floating in space mm -hmm. i don't know if it's not really necessarily that interesting in terms of a philosophical discussion there is um I think the interesting part of it is that there is this uh, like absurd idea, which is the amount of time that would take is longer than the age of the universe by like a lot. We're mm -hmm. talking like trillions of years. But there's this concept that maybe if you know the universe is sufficiently long enough, you could say, well, there will be a point at which that these brains appear. And you have this, it's called like a, it's like reductio al absurdum. You can like read that back backward through time and say well maybe we're our brains were just you know spontaneously generated out of the air aren't mm -hmm. like a result of millions of years or billions of years of evolution yeah and they just haven't all land in the place that made it look like there's evolution right? yeah exactly interesting so that's that's probably all that's really interesting about it <laughs> <laughs> i i do i don't know maybe you've also heard of the concept of like you know you can walk through a wall yep yeah statistically speaking so it's the same problem though it's it's a, that's a quantum mechanical instead of t statistical but you have to have if you walked into a wall every second it would take you longer than the age of the universe 
times a million to walk through that wall. Like, you know, every single second, just bonking your head against the wall. <laughs> so human lifetimes beyond humanity, beyond life. That's mm-hmm. how long it would take you to just kind of phase through the wall. Well, I mean, if you get lucky enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then you're like stuck right in this wall. So yeah, because there's also a better chance that you'll start passing through the wall and stop. Mm-hmm. Or that one teeny electron of yours gets gets through, but then the rest of you doesn't. You're, you have no idea. This <laughs> is yeah. one small part of you. Well, I'd heard something. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it kind of goes into just how astronomically large some numbers are, like a, mm-hmm. a Googleplex. Right. Or is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or is it just a Google? Or Googleplex is different. A That's Google, different. and then uh, the Googleplex is so a Google is one with hundred zeros. Yeah. And then a Googleplex is one with a Google zeros. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how big that number is, it's like so big that I was watching this one video. They were saying it's that number is so big that if the universe was that was a Googleplex miles long, they're not only it, it would be statistically likely that there are several exact copies of Earth in its current state, like in the universe. <laughs> like that, that would be how big that would be. There's, it is, yeah, statistically probable that there is multiple exact copies of the of the earth yeah yeah that's interesting the way i'd heard it had it explained to me how big that number was is that um math my math teacher said okay i'm gonna write a billion oh. down he just write one one and then like nine zeros right i was like oh okay and he's like this is a big number right and we're like yeah it's like okay so now i can write a google i just have to write this basically like 10 plus more times right i'll write 100 zeros yeah and so he's like so to write a google plex Imagine like how long it would take me to write that number of zeros. And he's like, I've only written a hundred zeros. So imagine how long it would take me to write a thousand zeros. And so he like, he keeps drawing. He's like, I can't even fit this on the board. He's like, I could write a million zeros and I would take up the whole school, right? With just walls of paper of me writing zeros. <laughs> and that wouldn't even be a fraction, like an, a significant fraction of a Google Plex. Yeah. The number of zeros that I would have just to write, write out. Just write the number. Exactly. Yeah. So he's like, just that alone is the... Yeah, I, I'd heard it also described like you would exhaust all the paper in the entire world just to write all the, write the number down on a page. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty big. The, the Boltzmann brain concept, I think, too, is trying to convey the idea that probably maybe that consciousness isn't necessarily a uniquely human thing. Mm-hmm. I think we always think of it that way because we've, we've encountered very few creatures that have like all of the markings of consciousness as we understand it like mm-hmm. we find like probably the smartest creatures are like dolphins or whales or orcas but yeah. they clearly are lacking some sort of consciousness as we see it like we wouldn't we would say that they definitely care for their young and they do can do violent acts or good acts and things of that nature but i don't know if we would consider them conscious enough to like give them the same level of rights as human beings yeah yeah which is a big part of it. So his argument was, well, it's not, we're not so special. Like a brain could just form in mm-hmm. like fully formed brain could just form by molecules colliding with each other. Yeah. And it trying to, it's a little absurd in a certain sense, right? Because yeah. I think of a large part of what a human brain or a brain is, is something to control, maintain and create more of that same mm-hmm. entity, right? It's about, I guess this kind of maybe leads to like the mind body problem. Are you aware of that concept? It's goes back very, it's like Aristotelian platonic too. I think so. I just maybe articulate what the specifically what that means. Cause yeah, it's people listening might not know. And I'm not a hundred percent sure 
I'm mm-hmm. just like guessing. Yeah, it's the you probably know the idea that mind and body are either separable or not inseparable, or that the it's kind of like what are the natures of man or nature of man? Is mm-hmm. man a body and a mind, and the mind is controls the body, or is it a body like an an animalian thing that controls the mind? I think it's best summarized maybe by Freud too, with the id, ego, and superego. Mm-hmm. The id being more the body, the ego being more the mind, and the superego being either you know society or some combination of those two parts. Hmm. Yeah. So it kind of pokes at that concept of mind-body, saying, "Oh, well, the brain could just you know be fully formed and not attached to anything." Right. But still conscious and understand. Well, we can build a brain using computer uh, like computer parts too. Sure. Like that- that's practically speaking as a brain yeah have you seen the movie ex machina yeah i, I think we've talked about it before mm-hmm. i don't know if we talked about it on the podcast but we definitely talked i think when we were we were just chatting like after after work and stuff we talked about ex machina but mm-hmm. then those i think it was before we started the podcast gotcha yeah there's the there's a famous scene in the movie where he like basically p- picks up this brain right he has yeah. like a brain and it's like i built this i think a lot of it's supposed to be like this is basically google building a artificial intelligence like i built this search engine technology and i used it to make this brain yeah because that's what search engines are good at doing it's similar to what brains are is you know acquiring random pieces of information and bringing them together yeah at least for me the mind body problem i thought was pretty clear that like neither one wins because there's a lot of biological feedback that your body gives to your mind so your mind is definitely not completely in control of things Mm -hmm. conversely you feel pain because your brain tells you to feel pain like there's a lot of things that your that your body experiences that are dictated by your brain and yeah. your body has no doesn't have actual control over it. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this kind of it's a more of a war than it is a one is subservient to the other. Yeah. I mean, the philosophical problem is really cool. Um but I find that one of those type of problems is what the purpose of like faith and religion kind mm-hmm. of helps ser- like serve is that you know, why are we here? Why do we exist? Or is my mind and body? Like, how do I explain that? And I think, you know, from my perspective, my religious perspective is that, like, I think that the there is a purpose of being here and that the mind is not just, like, right. echoes in a machine. Like, it's not just that I have a mind because this machine is pumping out ones and zeros. That's why I think you can build a brain and a computer and it doesn't have consciousness like we do. We've kind of talked about this before, right? Mm-hmm. Like kind of the conscious observer type of thing. Right. Um, Do you think consciousness is related to kind of a soul or a religious? Yeah. Bend? Yeah. yeah. That would make sense. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, the explanation is, I mean, you mentioned not liking creationists, and I can kind of, I can kind of agree that there's, uh, we recently, Alice and I came across my, a bunch of like archived um, sermons that my, pa- my pastor that I grew up like going to church with uh, mm. made mm-hmm. from like near the end of like when she, before she retired. Uh-huh. And there was one sermon she did that I was like perfectly, I think it summarizes why I have like such a nuanced opinion on things because I grew up listening to her preach mm-hmm. this way. And she talked about how God gave, uh, led Moses and his people to myrrh, the myrrh and everything and gave them that and fed them with the, with myrrh and how the scientific explanation of what myrrh was, was this like byproduct of parasites basically that they let off and it's kind of what people speculate and she said like does it make it any less like a gift or a miracle for it to have a practical explanation like just because there's a science that says this myrrh came from parasites um doesn't mean that god didn't to still provide for them right 
that mm-hmm. the that God is providing by opening their eyes to their to their options. To not expect um, God to act in your life in the way you want it to, but mm-hmm. expect Him to guide you to the solution. Um, and that was kind of like an interesting thing. Like she said, basically, you know, uh, that. Jesus was the bread of life and that if uh, we're waiting for literal bread, when, mm-hmm. when they read the book and it says, like, I will give you the bread of life or whatever, mm-hmm. if you're expecting a literal loaf of bread, you know, you're going to go hungry. That's what she said. It's not going to come in the way you expect it to. And that's why I think that that's how you're allowed. I think that's the primary way like a Christian like myself is able to reconcile science and faith. It's um, there's a there's a song called um, So Will I that I like a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of it really well explains how I see it where, you know, um, the first verse talks about like the galaxies forming and everything. And the, well, it's the first chorus, like, cause the chorus words change each time. And the first one talks about how like in like one word you spoke and all of the galaxies were formed in mm-hmm. the vapor of your breath, the planets formed. There's the, the line. And like that, um, kind of sees the way it's like, you know, that is what god is it is creation it is science it is what we see and observe mm-hmm. as much as it like doesn't it's not going to come in the form that the word directly told you literally and if you don't see it like that you're going to starve like you don't you're going to you're not going to be fed because you're not going to you're going to be starved from knowledge like you're not going to get the knowledge of science you're mm-hmm. going to benefit from that because you're just going to say this is not of god because we discovered it but it's still creation like it's still you know it still exists and if that's the way we and the more we learn about science and nature the more we understand creation the more that the more that like we just understand what has been made not that understanding it more means that what that doesn't exist right so that was a long tangent but i thought i thought it was like it it kind of like sparked that idea in me like reminded me of that Uh sermon that i was listening to yeah i don't it's a tangent but i think it's related in the I think a lot of what the concept of a Boltzmann brain comes from is abiogenesis. Mm-hmm. And this is like the, I remember from freshman biology, like the, basically the core problem with creationism and biology is that biology is inherently abiogenic. At some point there was something that we don't consider alive that became something that we do consider alive. Yeah. Just by the natural progression of chemicals that were some way sentient or not even necessarily sentient but capable of Mm self-reproduction making more of them those chemicals and then most fundamentally religious people say that doesn't make any sense there was a creator he was the source of all life he created life that's it there's no there's no contention well what about um i mean it kind of reminded me of that short story you shared with me um about the uh, the computer that got smarter and smarter, like they kept feeding it more information. The final problem, the final or the problem. last problem, whatever. It yeah, was. and how he the end. Of, the, the spoiler alert: if you don't want to have the story spoiled, this eat. Yeah, or <laughs> old short story spoiled for you. Like uh, skip ahead thirty seconds or whatever. But mm-hmm. they keep asking, "What's what is it like? What's the meaning of life? Or what's the purpose? Uh, how can I reverse entropy? Oh, reverse entropy. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Barry Boltzmann. Yeah. Related. How do I reverse entropy? And uh, then like they keep asking and he says not enough the computer just responds not enough data or not enough information Mm -hmm. and then like it ends with you know how do i reverse entropy when it's the lat when the computer is all that there is like everything in the universe is part of this living pre like breathing machine basically and then it says let there be light and explodes out into i would imagine that's what like it explodes out and becomes the new universe and the new existence and creation i kind of think 
you know, if that's what I think God is, then that's okay. Like I, I can think that that's how it works. Like the big bang was what God, the one act that God did to create everything was just the big bang happened. And that was, um, his doing that set everything in motion. Have you heard of the concept of a universe bounce? This is the idea that the big bang was actually more of a contraction point that the universe at one point before the big bang had been had expanded and that it retracted to the size of an orange and then it rapidly expanded again. Never no, heard, heard of that. That I was the when I heard that I was like that is would really mess with the whole you know, like no like let there be light and the beginning of everything, but it's so unprovable. But then what's happened before that? <laughs> no, that's exactly it's well there's some a lot of scientists I think hold the opinion that the universe is does not have an age like the observable universe has an age and that we can see light to a certain point, mm-hmm. but there's no concept of beginning. the beginning. Some people, some scientists think that they're basically, it's like either circular in some way. Like some people think that things will ha- happen again, or just that the concept of four dimensional space, usually it for humans, it definitely implies a beginning and an end because we live our lives, right? And we die and we see people around us die. We think we see things rise and fall. We see things that are finite in a temporal perspective, mm-hmm. but we have nothing to suggest that the universe is finite temporally, that it had even had a beginning other than some well, scientific obser- observations. Right. But then what it created, the thing that created it is also another question you could ask. That's, if it was yeah. created, then who created them? That's the Thomas Aquinas problem. And then that's when you come to the point where it's like, well, that he is, like I am, you know? The unmoved mover. Yeah. So but. that's, yeah, I mean, I accept all explanations i think that my the tenets of my faith aren't based on uh, literal interpretations of uh, a god i think mm-hmm. the tenets of my faith are based on how does one live like the, the good life li- a good life yeah. yeah um and i care much more about that than what comes afterward even though i've been promised the i've been promised that this kingdom the, is not of this earth kind of thing yeah but i think i i kind of view that as um there is not going to be an end. There will not be an end to my life, to my experience mm-hmm. that there will be something after. I do think that that's true. Um, and that's similar to why, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I believe that there was a single, like, I think I would, but um, that's probably my interpretation of existence is that it didn't have a beginning mm-hmm. and it won't have an end because that is what it, it's like. It's all that is. It right? is. Yeah. It's not like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is interesting though, because scientists do paint it in a very, like a, and they have to, right? That's a lot of what cosmology and geology is about is phases, right? Oh, it, this time in the past, things were like this. And then it, they changed and they became different. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like flies in the face of things have always existed or things are constant. Because, I mean, it, from what we've observed of this the system, right? Like the universe is that there was basically that orange-sized, everything in the universe fit into something the size of an orange, Mm-hmm. So it was like this cork soup. Everything was so close together. The The best way to think of it, if you know the relative distances of an atom is and an atom, if you blew it up to be to fit into a football field, you could you could basically like lay a um, you could lay a pin on the top riser of the like the furthest stand. You could take like a, a nickel and put it in the middle and the nickel would probably be the nucleus of the atom and the head of the pin at the top would be the electron. And that's how much distance there is in between yeah. them relative to the, how much space they actually take up. So that's how conceivably the whole universe could fit into that small orange-sized thing. Right. 
But then what happened when it rapidly expanded is that there was this like rapid cooling. That's where all this cosmic microwave background radiation comes from that you can observe everywhere. Like they, when they were aiming their telescopes to try and capture microwave radiation, they realized that the signal was coming from any direction that they pointed in. They were like, what the heck is this? And they're like, oh, it's the leftover like expansion from the early universe. Yeah. So clearly things have changed over time. Right. But it's it's not clear that it began that or... it was the start. Right. It's just clear that we don't know any more than that what's observed at that you know that moment 14 billion or 13.7 billion years ago, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I have some more statistical mechanics stuff that I think is maybe a little more interesting as far as the entropy part. So I should talk about entropy a little bit too before I go into the next part. So we, I think we've talked about like it on a very high level, maybe just the idea mm-hmm. of disorderliness, but in like statistical mechanics, it has like a very fundamental, it has that like log based equation. Yeah. And they really, what's important about entropy is that if you think of like, I have a, just an empty room and there's five sheets of paper and I stack the five sheets of paper on top of each other. There's very few like ways that those five sheets maybe could be rearranged in that stack but there's a lot more w- ways you could just kind of spread them around out on the floor. Yeah. And so that's that's what that's what basically entropy becomes is the concept that if all of those states are equally likely, then things are way more likely to move to a more disorderly state because they're just more disordered states that exist. Right. There's more ways to spread those pieces of paper all around the floor than there is for them to stack on top of each other. Right. So the other concept that's really statistical mechanics that's really interesting is something called Maxwell's demon. And so Maxwell was another um, big scientist in the 19th century who said, okay, what if you had two systems that were put next to each other that there were maybe at different temperature states? So you have hot and cold bath, kind of like an engine, refrigerator, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. What would normally happen, right, is that the heat side would basically rub up against the cold side and it would dissipate the energy. Yeah. So the idea of Maxwell's demons is what if there were a demon that were sitting at the the edge between the two and he had a gate and he could open the gate if he saw a hot molecule from the cold side move over. And so he could basically reverse entropy. That's the concept of Maxwell's demon. Hmm. That you, given the ability to observe individual molecules or individual things, you reverse entropy. Well, oh, you're going to have to explain that one more time. I, I... Yeah, no, it's weird. Okay, so... Let's think of it more in a... It's maybe hard to visualize with molecules, so maybe let's just blow it up to something that's analogous but maybe kind of hilarious. So let's say you have... You're trying to build the best football team. Yeah. And so you have just two rooms of football players. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that there's a door in between the two, and they're just practicing. They're just running around bonking into each other. So what you do is you're watching all of the football players and you're like, well, I don't want any of the good football players on my current side to go to the other side. And I don't want any of the bad football players from the other side to come to my side. So I'm going to sit in the middle and I'm going to watch these guys practice. And when any one of the good football players from their side runs over, I'm going to open the gate and let them in. in. (laughs) And then if I see any of the bad ones on my side run towards their side, I'm going to open the gate and let him out. So basically you have... Uh, the cold the cold source gets colder yeah and the hot one gets hotter yeah through supposedly no increase in entropy 
If the gate of myself, if the gating was not you possible, you have to put energy into the system though to get the gate flipping thing. Exactly. There's there's a lot of problems with the Maxwell's demon. One of them is like, what is the mechanism with which you observe those molecules, and how much entropy does that introduce into the system? Like, how much energy does it take to look Just at those look molecules? At yeah. Then, how much energy does it take to open a gate and close it? So there's a lot of problems with it, but it is interesting conceptually in the idea. Entropy is like the second law of thermodynamics says entropy always increases towards a maximum or stays the same. There's nothing that says that it couldn't for short periods of time go to a low, very low point yeah. of entropy, which is the whole idea of a brain forming or a star forming. Because yeah. stars are stars when they form are maximally non-entropic because they are a very high concentration of material yeah. and energy. And then they become entropy factories because they just shoot energy out into all the corners of the space. So yeah. they're spreading as much energy as possible. A black body is like the ultimate, the ultimate entropy, entropic thing besides a black body. This is where it gets weird. Is the black hole, which is weird because it actually just absorbs things. everything. Yeah. But the only way that it would make sense that entropy actually increases towards a maximum is if black holes are very highly entropic. And there's some like equations and things that show why that's the case why they're more like a black hole that absorbs everything is more entropic than a like a sun or a big star shooting things out into space why is that i think the the idea is that when you look at the gravity well this is now more of the general relativity but when you look at the gravity around a black hole you see that the set of states that it that can be occupied are very diminished that basically every object that comes within a certain distance of the black hole can only be in the black hole. So in that sense, the set of states that would normally cause entropy to be high or low are reduced drastically. Like the black hole says, like, you can only occupy this one state, which is being shoved into the singularity. Yeah. And so because of that, because it messes with the number of states that are available in space-time, that's, I think, the explanation for why it's very highly entropic. But they do radiate energy over time. I think we talked about Hawking radiation, where very slowly a black hole will evaporate to nothing. But it well, takes does it really long time. Radiate time. more energy than a star does? Probably not. Um, they can, but it's really weird. So, black holes are some of the brightest things in the universe because what they do is they eat stars. But while they do that, they spin a bunch of matter around them, mm -hmm. and a lot of that matter escapes in the form of light energy or heat energy or whatever it is. So, like, the centers of galaxies that are very bright, those are black holes. Yeah. Like, the supermassive ones. Yeah. So, they are, you can see how they are actually really engines of entropy because they, when, by absorbing things, they spin out a lot of energy. Yeah, I guess if you go far enough out. It's kind of like saying, well, is a star not entropic? Or is a star not entropic just because when you get close to it, you get pulled in? Right. Well, it's not true because, like, if you go out to the outer edges of the star, it's throwing massive amounts of energy out so if you go far enough out from the black hole that you won't be drawn in mm -hmm. you'll actually be thrown around the outside you'll be like slingshot right? exactly there the energy that it would right you could do the a lot of what you know space travel is predicated on is that you slingshot yep. around planets or moons or things like that yeah. the black holes are notorious for being able to they can they can lens light also around them so that's how we observe them is that light is bent that's why it's a black hole because the light doesn't go through the center it goes all around the outside yeah exactly it's refracted around light does not escape from the center the that's mm -hmm. why it's a black hole like, yeah with air quotes yeah every i can't remember we talked about like uh wormholes too or white holes or those other like conceptually how those form because they're they're not really entropic but they're very interesting that 
mm-hmm. you have the I think we've talked about like a tesseract for before where you have like your two fingers and you have an ant that crawls from one finger to the other maybe along a piece of string and then if you bring your two fingers close together the ant can just like hop from one finger to another this yeah. is like popular in the wrinkle in time in the book i think they actually draw that little mm-hmm. section yeah so the concept in black hole is that a black hole could warp space-time so much that it tunnels through to another region of space-time and then there's a corresponding black hole that opens up on that side or is it just the same black hole yeah it basically is the same black hole just appearing but it it occupies two locations in space-time well it's because it occupies two it's a it's a concept of something four-dimensional not appearing or confusing a three-dimensional like mindset Fully three-dimensional mindset, right? I think it's part of it, but it is occupying two three-dimensional places at this in the same four-dimensional space. Like, or sorry, at the same moment in a four-dimensional time. Well, but actually, no. I think technically you're right. So take that it's let's not. say I take a marble, right, and then that's three-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And let's imagine that a piece of paper is two-dimensional, right? Mm-hmm. I could theoretically split the marble in half and have it be on one half of the page and on the other half of the page. So right. it seems as if that marble is in two places at once. If you fold really the page over. Fold the page yeah. over, you're just looking at two halves of the same object. Yeah, you're right, but in a four-dimensional sense. So yeah, it's, it's just harder to visualize. Space. Yeah, you have to you have to take it into a two-dimensional space. It's just like a, a, two, a creature that lived in a two-dimensional space would not be able to describe a three-dimensional space to you. Yeah, the flat world. Like they see things in a one-dimensional... They see things from a one-dimensional perspective, just like we, as three-dimensional creatures, see the world in a two-dimensional perspective. Like, we actually do not perceive visually in three dimensions it's a you know, i can't see the wall behind you right now right i would have to be fourth dimensional like a fourth dimensional being to be able to see both you and the thing behind you hmm, how do you mean like imagine that, that you're imagine point? you're a two-dimensional creature right mm-hmm. so you exist in one plane you have an orientation you can look and what your orientation tells you is just everything in a straight line mm-hmm. you can't you can't see both in front of you and then to the right what you can do is you can move and reposition to to be able to like intuit and get an Im- image of like the two dimensional space, but you still only perceive one dimensionally as a two dimensional creature. Oh, I think what you're I think what you're saying is that the of the there's one axis that you're kind of occupying, so you can't see that axis. Is maybe that what you're yeah. saying? Okay. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Because we are, I think we are four dimensional creatures that see three dimensionally, fundamentally. Like we have. We have two visual inputs, like a left eye and right eye, that when we mesh the image, we create the illusion of depth, even though they're, they're basically two-dimensional. Two yeah. And how, like, a fourth-dimensional creature, one that was, like, lived and occupied a fourth-dimensional space, like, would... Well, I guess, technically, do you, are you saying that we do occupy four, four dimensions? Yeah, I, I think we do. We really can't see four-dimensionally. Like, we we observe it because we experience it, like, moment to moment. I mean... You can you, you can I do guess this for I mean even if there was a two dimensional creature it'd still occupy as many dimensions as exi- at, as what exists it just would not be aware of mm-hmm. more than the single plane yeah exactly although no like if you took two pieces of paper that were like two two dimensional spaces mm-hmm. you could form or you could take like as many pieces of paper as it takes to make a cube <laughs> six and yeah, yeah you take six pieces of paper and the creature that's all t- and lives in two dimensions is only on one sheet at a time. Like, they could move from one to the other, but then once they move across to the other one, they then become... I guess they could technically half in one and half in another plane. There is a Well, that's the same idea of, I think, walking through a wormhole, right? 
uh-huh. while you're passing through the wormhole, you're both in one three-dimensional space and another at the same time, two different, two separate planes. Yeah. So while you're in transition from one to the other, you could be occupying more than one. But I think that fundamentally we do occupy one plane, three-dimensional plane. And then you take DMT and then you can communicate with the interdimensional yes. beings. Do some hard drugs, <laughs> some psychedelic or drugs. Or Alex Jones. <laughs> All right. Um, do you want to take a break? Sure. This is that point in the podcast. We'd like to thank everyone who made this possible. We'd like to thank our friend Daniel, also known by the by his artist name of Vibenium. That's V-I-B-E-N-I-U-M. You can find his music on SoundCloud. He wrote and produced the song that you hear at the beginning and that you'll hear again at the end. Um, the song's called Emeralds, in case you're interested. Again, you can find his music on SoundCloud. He goes by the artist name of Vibenium, V-I-B-E-N-I-U-M. Thank you, Daniel. With that, we'll return to our podcast. All right. We're back. Round two. (laughs) This time with teapots. So, do you know what the um, status code? It's I think it's the status code four one six or four one nine. It's one of the two status codes. I don't know either of them. It's uh, I'm a teapot. Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do know that one. That's a very fun little status code. I can't remember what the origin of it is, but mm-hmm. it clearly there's a every time like someone sends me like a very obscure HTTP status code, I'm like I have no idea what this is, and then I look up like the status code and it's a website that's all cat or dog memes to explain the different status codes yeah. <laughs> like i don't know if this helped me but at least i get a little trickle out of it yeah. okay so bertrand russell is a famous philosopher slash not a very friendly religious to friendly to religious person so he's atheist he has this concept of uh, having a teapot that is floating in space he says imagine there's a teapot floating in space between earth and mars He's like, does the burden lie on me, the person saying that, to prove it to you? Or does it lie on you to disprove it, the person hearing it? That's his concept. Or that's the point of it. Yeah. So I just, I guess, I don't know what your thought is on it. Where does the burden of proof lie with people that are saying, does the burden of proof lie with a person that says the teapot exists or the people that say it doesn't? Right, exactly. Hmm. So... It's a very interesting dilemma, but I think it's dishonest. It's dishonest. I feel like it's a little bit dishonest. It's not a apples to oranges comparison. Neither is the flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> I don't like the flying spaghetti monster either. Because the burden of proof lies with you when I say this person did walk this earth, and this is like what they said, and they rose from the dead, mm-hmm. and everything like that. And does the burden of proof lie with, lie with me to prove the parts that are mystical about it? that he rose from the grave or does the burden of proof fly with me to prove that he existed at all and all the stories right. that he told there is a book of people that has firsthand accounts of it happening so at that point it's like that's not the same thing as me you just conjecturing that there is a teapot out there right like oh we have a book of people that were there mm-hmm. there are stories that told that were they witnessed it and his story and his witness and his power and like the mist like the mysticism around what he did 
and the things he did are what tell us that his story is true. That's right. that's what I would say. So like at that point though, I think it's the it's neither. It's it's who how do you prove it to yourself? I think is the the question, the real question. That should you prove it to yourself that it doesn't exist or should you have to prove to yourself that it does exist? Yeah. I think the it is a, a like a false dichotomy too between science and faith. Yeah. Because in a in a scientific view of reality you basically have to make claims that are unfalsifiable through experiments like you cannot show make an experiment that proves my thing false that's what makes things true in a scientific sense yeah it's the like double negative like i can't say it's not right but in a faith or a religious sense there's there's elements to it that you could say like well you know moses didn't really live to be like 100 something years old or he wasn't really here or, he didn't really do that sort of thing whatever concrete claims you may or may not want to make about religious figures also are very problematic too because i think history is very much viewed through the lens of individuals and their times so we'll look at moses or jesus or any religious figure now we'll say oh think of all of the you know race-based things they were talking about or think of all the social political things that they cared about or as, you know, you know, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, maybe people are mostly viewing them through the lens of, well, I'm really hungry all the time, mm -hmm. as are most people. Or we're all dying of, you know, smallpox or infections or whatever it is. That's, you know, Jesus healed sick people and all of these famous religious figures have, you know, some sort of healing powers or some sort of understanding of how to commune with the divine to overcome sickness and disease. That aspect of, like, you know, the concrete parts of history or religion is kind of muddled just by the human experience of viewing history differently across time. And then I think the more fundamental parts too, which are the things that are supposed to be inflexible, like, you know, wh why do you get up in the morning or why are we here? Ontology, teleology, that stuff I don't think really f fits in the domain of science. Like it's not a falsifiable thing. It's right. not like yeah. Jesus said, love your enemy. Like prove to me that that's false or true. It's like, okay. That doesn't mean anything. Like, that's not what it's about. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a morality thing. It's also that um, I, I don't agree that there's anybody that, practically speaking, has no faith. Mm-hmm. Like, because um, what faith is, is faith is trusting something beyond the ability to prove it right or wrong. And there are many areas of our life in which we require blind faith for certain things. Yeah, you have like, to trust people, right? Have you ever met the government... The money just comes out of your paycheck and I've, just goes off to nowhere. I've and seen Donald Trump. He's the worst now. <laughs> I just think there's too much out there to learn to have uh, to realistically take a stance, an mm -hmm. informed stance on everything you do. Yeah, I agree. It's far too much. I mean, it's it's worth trying to learn what you can, but then you risk you run the risk of just not really knowing anything at that point. Mm -hmm. like you become too a jack of all trades, master of none type thing. You don't really know you don't really become a master or ascend to a high enough level of knowledge on a topic in order to be like an expert on it. Yeah. At that point. Right. So. That's right. The, there's a Austrian school of economics. They're very big in like the libertarian community. They came, they became popular in like the 1920s, I want to say thirties. And there's a, I can't remember his name now, but there was one of the philosophers out of that school that said like, we are, both ignorant and like necessarily ignorant of 90 or 100% of the things that make our lives possible. Right. 
Like, you and I right now couldn't go out into the farmland of Virginia and raise cattle and farm right. just because we would le- we could learn it, but it would take time. It would take effort. Right. And we would probably be bad at it to begin I mean, with. Yeah, there's a good example right there. Let's say I have faith that Walmart will have T-shirts. <laughs> or I have faith that um, Wegmans will have lettuce, heads of lettuce and bananas. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't go into their management office and, like, say... How many shipments of bananas are we getting? How many bananas are we selling per month? And am I gonna am I gonna be able to have bananas on Friday? Like, mm-hmm. are you gonna make sure it's gonna happen and show me that it's gonna happen and prove to me that without a shadow of a doubt that bananas will be here Friday? Like, that's just not you don't do that. You just say, oh, I have faith that if I show up to Wegmans right now, they'll have bananas. Yeah, I will take I will invest the thirty minute drive to get there on complete blind faith that they have bananas. Mm-hmm. There's a in math too. This is the part that I think kind of sealed the deal for me and saying okay i don't really think russell's teapot really has any meaning in certain in a certain context is that there are parts of mathematics that are what they call axiomatic yep they take them as truth they are unprovable they make the system that you work in work so like the system where zero represents nothing and that two parallel lines never meet these are all Mm -hmm. axiomatic things because you can go into a system where two parallel lines do meet those are like on a on a curved surface, like parallel lines will end up meeting. Yep. Or you have the like basic concepts of like how big a triangle is or how, you know, how many degrees there are in certain shapes. And that's only true in certain, you know, axiomatic systems. Yeah. So when I heard that, I was like, okay, so what you're telling me is I have to have faith that some guys came up with some things that are correct and that make everything work. For a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right. so, they're that, useful to answer a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And that's where I've been listening to Jordan Peterson recently, and he's mm-hmm. he's all about ideas are tools. And so yeah. to me, that's the same part of religion. Like you can't – if you think of religion as a concrete, this is what happened exactly as I'm telling you, and this is why you have to do certain things, I think you're misrepresenting what it's supposed to be about, right? It's supposed to be a – give you a, a tool – yeah, in a certain sense, to live your life. Yeah, Jordan Peterson. Uh, I was thinking about that when you were talking about it because he does this thing when he talks to people that are. I, I would say they behave as atheists do, like they kind of talk and mm-hmm. carry themselves in that way, where you could say they like, oh, of course, parallel lines never meet. It's like, well, no, that's not. You can't just say that. Like, we had it took us a long time of thinking about this, and it's a very complex problem mm-hmm. about why that's important and how it can be used. Like, you can't just take it. Um, just because you were raised hearing this all the time and it was around you since birth doesn't mean it's yeah. inherent to your being that you would know that, right? It's it is something like I, I not don't take for granted what you know just because of where you grew up, and that's what I know. The reason I think like some of the things that atheists say like, well, they're when they try to make thing when they try to make arguments like, um, and I'm feeling I'm sounding like I'm being pretty harsh on atheists right now. Screw you, like, atheists. No, yeah. But there's just that um, the way of thinking, the similar way of thinking I've seen a lot, where it's like um, uh, they try mm-hmm. to describe a non-religious foundation for morals, where yeah. they're like, um, yeah, I mean, I can think of a selfish reason why most of our morals make sense, like completely out for my own good, like why? Well, I don't want you to kill me, and so we should not be able to kill each other because I don't want you to kill me. Yeah, the secular or I ethics. Be able to steal because yeah. I don't want you to steal from me. Mm-hmm. Like why there's a completely like self-centered way, and I I just don't agree that that just because you can lay out a system that is, is like a, a secular ethics system, 
doesn't mean that people will do that. I I also have the I have a pessimistic view that most people aren't smart enough to think that way, which I really hate saying that, but mm-hmm. I don't think people can I don't the, a lot of the people that propose these things like that oh we could live secularly, we don't need religion, we don't need all of these old systems, they're, you know, they're full of things like, you know, misogyny and you know, racial, mm-hmm. you know, racism and things like that. We should just throw all that away. We're smart enough to just come up with the rules on our own. And I think, well, maybe you're smart enough to come up with the rules on your own. But do you think that the other people will follow your rules and believe that they're, you know, the right rules to live by? Yeah. Also, the idea that we could come up with the rules would somehow indicate that those rules can be changed. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the benefit of having the foundation in faith or morally grounded in something larger than humans. Mm-hmm is that we make it outside of ourselves. We take it away from humans and say, this is a thing that's greater than people, that's greater than humankind, that is morals, that did not come from us. That's what we say, like, that didn't, didn't come from us. And I think in debating, debating on how you interpret it, I'm okay with some people not interpreting literal, like God, mm-hmm. could say that, well, let's look at a king. We've talked about this before. Jordan Peterson says, like, look at a king. And what a king represents is, the epitome of moral standards and ethical standards for an entire group of people. Mm-hmm. And if you take the king of kings, that is all of the kings in the world, and you boil them down to their most elemental values, mm-hmm. that is what the king of kings would represent. And so I think that we should not take that what is thousands of years of development on ideas and morals that has been boiled down into what is core core to human existence and, and really important for humans to follow and then say, well, it's based on believing supernatural, believing in the supernatural. And therefore the moral, the morals that preaches are not valuable to me. Because right. I can't believe the I can't buy into the supernatural part. It's yeah. It's like, okay, you don't have to buy into the supernatural, but you should buy into what is living a good life, what it means to live a good life. And that I think is good. Very good from like the new Testament. Like you can read the new Testament and get a good read on like what a good life looks like. Hmm. There are a couple pieces I've read that you reminded me of. The first is there's a, there's um the Leviathan. Have you heard of the the book? It's by um one of those infamous philosophers, uh, Thomas Hobbes. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that like, you know, life is nasty, brutish and short. And that man needs a, Men as in humans need like a controlling, powerful, all powerful force to lead them, and the cover of the, the Leviathan is a is a piece from Job, right? It's about like this large creature in the sea, yeah, that God shows Job. But it's in the cover of the book. It's actually a a king. He's holding like a sword in one hand and a scepter, and in the other to represent the military might and then religious might. Mm-hmm. And if you look at his body, his body is just composed of a bunch of people's heads. So he's he like you're saying he's the he's the representation of a group, a shared way of under of understanding and thinking and acting, morally. So that was the first thing I thought of. The second one is there's this uh, book called um or it's not a book it's a short story called Pigeon Feathers, and it's about this kid who like one day is reading this book by Orson Welles and or talking about how God doesn't exist and he's like oh my God doesn't God doesn't exist and then his mom's like it, it's okay like humans created god and like it's not a big deal and so he's like what and then he and then he ends up shooting pigeons in a barn and that's how he feels connected with god that's like the way the story ends 
It's a very strange short story. I think it's John Updike. I'm not 100. percent But what I get what does from, that mean? Yeah, I guess that's what you're about to say. What what I get from that story that I think is fundamental to like and any religious discussion that I have is that God may or may not exist, but religion is a construction of humans. Like mm-hmm. a God may have handed down, maybe he did, maybe he didn't hand down laws from on high. He may have done great things, he may not have, but humans wrote things down and have preserved and created institutions. And interpreted them. And interpreted them. And I this is funny because I don't think of myself as a like very much like a person who believes in God, but I believe in religion. Like I believe in the power of systems that have been around for a long time that are moral compasses. And I think the scientific revolution only enforced that for me more because when, when I think of the things that the scientific revolution has done, it's just increased our like tooling and technological capacity, but not our morality necessarily. Yeah. Like we have atom bombs. We have all sorts of ways to kill each other that we couldn't have dreamed of thousands of years ago. We are safer now, but I think that's a lot more to do with monopolies of force and the just, you know, the, t- the tooling that we have to k- take care of ourselves, like drugs and hospitals and things like that. So I don't think that a lot of people, I think, think that science is displacing religion. And I think it has displaced the pieces of it that I always thought were the most shaky, which are the, this is why lightning exists, or this is why it rains. We don't, we have no idea. So we're going to make stuff up. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's cause, and you could tell that it's made up because every religion has something different to say about it, yeah. right? Like, you know, the Norse people think that there is a single God that has you know, sole purview over making it rain or lightning or thunder, right? right? Thor. But like the Christian tradition is like, well, God, if he's angry or, you know, he'll bring up storm about. And obviously it's not explained in nearly the same way or mm-hmm. they're just trying to, they're, they're not trying to like, oh, we need to explain this, but you know, it's, it's part of what religion's supposed to do. It's fill yeah. out the world. I mean, my interpretation of God is that the fundamental forces of the universe he created to um essentially out of necessity to bring about what is life and the first mover yeah exactly it's very aristotelian why why is why do particles pull each other together and why you know why does gravity exist like what causes gravity to happen oh the higgs boson (laughs) of course (laughs) clearly it's not god (laughs) yeah yeah like i said i don't think it displaces it it just gives an explanation that may satisfy some things, but only causes maybe more consternation. Like once you realize that, you know, the reason that babies die from certain diseases or why we get old or why certain things happen, it doesn't necessarily make it better. Right. Like a fundamental part of why creatures get old is because it has a lot to do with how their species creates more of themselves. So species where they can create a lot of themselves very quickly have much shorter lifespans because it's like, Oh, I don't need to live longer to like more slowly create more versions of myself. Mm-hmm. I can just have like, you know, I'm a dog. I can just have like 10 pups at once. And then I die in like five years. It's not a big deal. Once you know that it's like, well, that didn't satisfy me. Now I'm not like, Oh, now I know why we die. It's so that other creatures can live from an evolutionary perspective. That doesn't satisfy, right, right, anything morally for me. It's not like, oh, now I can go kill everyone because whatever, it's just evolution. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's not filling something, not filling that void. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, what I do think that it's hard to have without strong faith, 
and it's not impossible. I mean, there's definitely people out there like this, but the type of people that you encounter that are so have like unwavering values, like these values are things that they just like will not compromise on. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're very clear cut and like they all, they'll tell you directly to your face that you're just, that they think you're wrong. Because I think when you have like a, a person that's not, doesn't have strong faith that does that, then mm-hmm. what do they believe in? So I, I'm using the word faith, not meaning you believe directly in God, but that you have belief in something external from yourself so if that's truth or science or anything like that like i do right. think faith is should not be like sl- like people shouldn't sleep on it they shouldn't think like well faith is not important i just believe in truth it's like well you believe in that right you believe that truth is the way or you believe that you know um human life is the most valuable thing and there there we should pres- we should preserve that over everything like those kind of things you know work towards curing all the diseases and healing everybody you can mm-hmm there's people that believe very strongly in you know feeding the hungry and feeding people and that that is the most important thing and they have faith in their cause being the right value but it's really hard to get faith in those driving beliefs from something like science like i don't at that point then you're just saying well my faith is in things i can scientifically prove and then at that point you have faith in what you can see with your eyes it's not really faith though right as in faith isn't faith the in the absence of proof or in the absence of sureness, I accept something or I believe in something. I thought that was the faith is a leap, well, right? It's not a faith in their assumptions, right? As a science, you're saying yeah. if you're I was a, saying if you're doing science, like you have to have God had faith to, to be like, yes, concretely. Yes. And it's kind of the axioms you're talking about. Like they just don't acknowledge that there is things that they're making huge assumptions and huge logical leaps over right. to be able to get there. They take those things for granted when they because they've been taught them their whole life or they have had things reinforced in their whole life. Yeah. I I think one of the main things that I get from a lot of like scientific reading on like biology is that there's so many ways to observe the universe and we have such a limited set at our disposal mm-hmm. and we create all these like fascinating machines that can like kind of expand the ways that we can observe but they're just extensions of the ways that we think of observing them. Yeah. So we aren't really experiencing reality as other things actually do we're just kind of trying to tap into we're just trying to kind of translate yeah translate and stick our you know antennas out farther is how i think of it Mm -hmm. like think of how a tree views the world is maybe one of the more fascinating things to do because i was reading about them recently they're they're mostly dead like a tree is that has a hardwood center that's mostly dead and has this like three layered core or sorry this three layered sheet around that core that it uses to pull water out from the earth up into the leaves, right? And take the, you know, energy from the leaves and recirculate it around its body. But these things live many, many more years than any humans have, right? Hundreds of years, thousands of years, some of them. Yeah. Right? They just kind of accrue things. They Their lifetimes are on such a different scale that they're experiencing things. And, and we would say, well, they don't matter because they're not sentient or they don't think. Yeah. But at the same time, they they are living creatures, right? So they they have value, at least in, in the sense that if we think living things have value. And yeah. we know from science, too, that they do things like produce oxygen and are big carbon sinks. So they're the reason that, you know, you can have, you don't have, like, runaway greenhouse effects is because all these plants are storing all this CO2 mm-hmm. in them. So it's just interesting to think that you not only have to have faith that 
your system is right, but you have to have faith that you're not super biased because of the fact that you're basically mm-hmm. an overgrown primate with a big brain. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, another example I can think of um, in the software space with Agile teams that I kind of have run into most recently. And I was wondered why I had a tough time agreeing with some people. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I like a, there's a large number of people that are really passionate about Agile that I run into some pretty surprising disagreements with. <laughs> and like I think the fundamental assumption and thing that they place their faith on that they don't acknowledge is the tenant that something is better than nothing. That's the whole Agile way is based heavily on the idea that delivering something is going to be better than delivering nothing. But yeah. assu- I think the problem with that assumption is when you take the fact of what is really, I think, the negative side of extending that. Like, I think at a, at some core level, that's correct. But what is the dangerous part is to assume you have nothing. Like, you don't have anything. We say I have an engineering team, and we're working on a feature, and quarterly release comes up, and we're like, well, we're not shipping anything this quarter. Somebody could say, like, well, it would be better to ship this feature at 80 percent um and just we could send it out and it would just get it would get value and then we could come back and iterate on that value we've gotten back and fix things and make it better well your one engineering team may have five other teams around them and then that quarterly release comes up and four of the teams ship great things great software that's like really high quality really excellent and your team ships the 80 percent of the of the product and you say that something was better than nothing it's like actually no your crap could have ruined the whole release because everything else was great but the first thing the customer looked at was your was yours and said i'm not really happy with the quality yeah right? so the assumption being that i do see that in some ways that if we don't have a product then there's nothing to work on like if we don't send anything out then we don't have anything to iterate over well if you have a big team around you and one and you deliver four out of five features that actually may be better than delivering five out of five mm-hmm. when it comes down to it. And I think uh, Tim and I had a encounter about this, but I felt like I kind of, kind of clicked for me because it was like one of our most valuable pieces of the product is the, the, mo- the one that we feel has the most need for like tech debt fixing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told me that like, this is a great example of like why, you know, shipping something is better than shipping nothing because it's the most valuable thing we have. And I, I kind of turned to him and I was like, you can't tell me with a straight face that the whole thing would not be better with two or three less features. Like if you took out two less, two less features from that whole product, fixed, spent that extra time to fix everything else up and make everything else really high quality, that that would not bring the value it's already bringing with more like tenfold because people enjoy using it. Yeah. Right. Like that's that's I think the the core of my philosophy because I've I've been in a like I've you know run bands a lot and I think it's where I've kind of learned this and internalized it that sometimes it's better just to do an acoustic set right mm-hmm. sometimes it's better just to have a guitar in your voice because that is the most pure and good thing that you had in the whole group like if you have a drummer that never shows up and is not very good and is not playing a rhythm and he he's just loud and noisy and distracts from everybody else. That's the that's just the honest truth of it. That yes, everybody else could have figured something better out than what we did, without you. And it's tough to admit that, but I think at the same time, then it it sets a bar and a standard for that drummer to live up to. I'm not going to accept that you're better than nothing. 
and I'm not going to let you degrade the quality of everything else we're doing here just be, just to so I have a drummer, right? Yeah. I'd rather not have a drummer. And if you if you don't want to learn, if you don't want to get better. But that's the thing I would that's the thing I would say to most that's kind of how my one of my values and faith. I think people that is one thing that I think uh within the agile space people don't give credit to how much faith they're placing in that idea of delivering something is better than nothing yeah a lot of times i think too is the lack of understanding that people won't use your thing Mm -hmm. no matter what quality it's at that's i think a huge part that's missed in agile right is that we're gonna pump out these features and be like wow look how many features this thing has and then the person who comes to use their software like i use it to build forms (laughs) and i talk to i talk to salesforce and the 80 other things you build for me i don't give a crap about Mm-hmm. But the twenty percent that I do use very heavily, like I have a lot of problems with, or I wish they'd change this, or mm-hmm. maybe if they, I don't need this feature, so why didn't they spend the time just improving this one that already exists? Yeah, I think it's a you you have to show growth and you have to show that you're always changing, and kind of digging up old soil doesn't show that. That's I think the fundamental problem. You can't show that you've been doing new things when you're like we made the old thing better. I think I agree with you fundamentally that. Yeah, it would have been better not to ship the old thing until it was ready. Yeah. And then you don't change it. Yeah, but it's also, that's never the case. Unless you add to it. Right, it's never the case that you probably made something perfect. But it could be the case that you made it better by doing fewer things, that do fewer things better. I also agree with the whole thing that don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Mm -hmm. But don't let good enough be the enemy of good either, like... There, you can't have like a disparity of quality either. You can't have something that's like, wow, this is so much worse than every other experience I have, or this mm-hmm. is so much slower, or this is so much more painful to use. Like the complexity level is just off the charts compared with anything else that I've touched. Yeah. But I think you you get into when you get into a large enough system, you're gonna find that all over the place because different people design different parts of the system, and so there were people that had simplicity and quality in mind at certain parts, and there were people that had, you know big bang features and other parts Mm -hmm. in mind. And then there's the, I think the thing that is really missed is that there are things that exist that you're like, this is so bad. And you're like, Oh, you know why this is so bad? Because only one person wanted it. And we put one guy on it for one week and he built it and we never changed it. That's what I remember it. Someone, there was some part of Appian that the guy spent, Oh yeah, he wrote this in like a month or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is such a core feature set in terms of like everyone Uh I know uses this thing. But at the time that it was constructed, it was the, this maybe to take your acoustic session example, right? He just needed to do his like MTV unplug session. So he just like jammed for a month and then he did it. And then he was like, good, now I'm done. And then he didn't realize he was going to have to support it for the next like 10 years. (laughs) Right. Or that's all everybody knows him for. Yeah, exactly. And so then they're like, hey, can you sign my copy of this unplugged album? Like, yeah, the jam session you did. Yeah. Can you play that one song again? He's like, no, I hate this song. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. that is the that is the another huge problem with Agile is that it's always about iterative improvement, but it never I don't think they ever take like a strong retrospective of like, wow, this thing that we wrote, what happened to it over the course of like three years? Mm-hmm. It's more like, oh, this thing that we wrote, we like ditched it this month and then we added new stuff this month. It's all moment yeah. to moment. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we can uh, we probably wrap up there because we are going into like agile and software. Maybe we could save that. We can go in more depth of that next time. Or, or yeah, time software would be good because yeah. I started reading the Mythical Man Month. It's mm. a good old book. <laughs> yeah. Cool. 